threw it and thumped the wizard right on the head. And the demon grabbed the wizard by the foot and he dragged him down into the depths of the abyss. But first, demon, thank you. You forgot that part. Oh, did I, Zestin? Um, what? Well, yes, the demon thanked me and he took away the magic ring you gave me. If it wasn't dark, you could see the outline of the ring burned on my finger. Sun upping now. Morning soon. I see then. Tennis! Oh, elves are here. Elves? What elves? What, what is it? What's going on? Portheos! Tennis, what's happening? It's Portheos. Gilthana's brother. I take it this is a rescue? It won't be much of a rescue if we end up dead. I thought the elves were expert marksmen. Keep low. The arrows are only to cover our escape. This is a strike and run raid. My people aren't capable of attacking a large body directly. It must be ready to run for the woods. And how do we get out of the cages? Not do everything for you. There are magic users. <laughs> I cannot work without my magic components. Bisbet, what are you doing? Keep down, old one. Perhaps I, I can help of the abyss is going on. Why have we stopped? We are under attack, master! Attack? Get the cards moving. We're under attack! Elves trying to free the prisoner. The, the, the driver and the guard dead! What we do? I'll get another driver. You stay here. Guard these prisoners with your life. I'll hold you responsible if they escape. My guards! Hobgoblins, to me! Charge north. I must report this to Lord Verminard. Draconians, guard the prisoners! Well, that takes care of the hobgoblins. Now all we have to worry about is 50 years old Draconians. I don't suppose there are hundreds of elves out there. <laughs> More like 20. We've got to get out of this cage. The Draconians won't bother taking us to Pax Tharkis now that the few masters gone. They'll just butcher us in these cages. Caramon! Sestin! Sestin! Your axe! Break the break the lock! No, I, I don't know! Sestin! Help free us and you can come God with us! Please, Sestin, please! It's on his damn cage! That axe is older than I am! It must date back to the cataclysm! He couldn't cut through a kinder's brain, let alone that lock! Hush! Draconians closing in! Hurry, Sestin! Tannis! They're coming! He chipped it. At this rate, we'll be out in about three days. Kill the prisoners! Divide the spoils! <laughs> this bin, old one, keep under cover. Get down! You're drawing their fire! <laughs> Say that, my boy. Um, have you a bit of a bat guano on you? I'm out. <laughs> no! Old one, get down! Oh, pity? Well, I guess I'm just going to have to wing it. What spell is he casting? Can you understand him, Raceland? <laughs> no! Take cover! Raceland, what is it? <laughs> A fireball! Pre-recorded in a second-floor guest room filled with tall ales and taller tales. Join a group of grown men intent on discussing the intricacies of fantasy and science fiction. Tim Gilbert Media presents... Don't just let me!
Hello, all you draconians, high lords, and goblins. This is the Dungeons and Dreams podcast, episode two. I'm your host, Bob the Grand High Vault of Gulp Pudging, coming to you with part two of our review of Dragons of Autumn Twilight. But I'm not alone. Across the table from me, the theocrat of Takesis's spandex gene jeggings, Luke. Two episodes in, and we're going strong with the nicknames. Ready about I'm doing great. How about yourself? Feeling good. I'm uh, excited to get through this. We spent a long time talking about book one of volume one. But let's get into this club. Hey, coming back again. This is your aged mage wizard. No, I'm not. I'm the fighter. <laughs> Paul, how's it going over there? It's going good. Still haven't figured out what I'm going to do for uh, plan, but we'll come up with one sooner or later. <laughs> Perfect. Best plans are devised on the spot. That is how I roll all the time. Yeah, so it only got me in trouble at least twice. I'd rather be lucky than good any day. Uh-huh. <laughs> but here we are in our third podcast covering book two of volume one of Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Let's just jump into this. I feel already uh, that I'm getting a little confused. I'm getting it that uh, TSR and, and Dungeons and & Dragons likes things in modules. If book one was written off a module, a Dungeons & Dragons module, uh, here we are in module two, right? And hey, reset to zero. We're back at the end of the last home. And actually, you know what? I, I do kind of feel like the, the splitting of the, the books is a little arbitrary, but it is because we are actually in module two of the Dragonlance campaign. Right. So I think that's really, we, we did talk about it a little bit before about how this is so tied to the modules. And I think it's right. just another example. Of it. Again, my, my statement from, from the beginning of this is I am not going to hold Although some blame I will probably hold to Weiss and Hickman. But again, at this point, uh, they are beholden to these um, these modules from the game. And so one of my big beefs last week was that we've got this collection of characters that is now resetting back uh, again. They are still directionless. I know it's a D&D thing. I find it kind of poor storytelling. So that is, I'm going to continue with that beef, definitely into this next book. And I understand exactly what you're saying with that, but again, like you said, this is a D&D thing. This is a, your group just learned to work together, we just finally beat one minor bad guy, now we have to, so what do you do after that? You reset to the next level. So now we're at the beginning of the next level, so we go back to somewhere familiar, and we go back to the, you know, the bar. You right. go back to the tavern, because, again, that's where in D&D you get the information from. So I didn't have as much of a problem with that as you did. And right. everyone wants to always go home. You know, after a big thing like this, you generally would go, okay, I want to take a little bit of a break. You know, if I can, get a little R&R. It's not, you don't always want to constantly be going. And this is a DM thing as well. Yep. This is where your group has just been beat up. Where, where can you send them that safe, or where do they go that safe to get more weapons, to heal, to go and do whatever shopping your group needs to do when you're actually playing this as a campaign. Oh, shopping. And see, this is where I'm seeing, I'm seeing the apologists for the book. If Again, I'm going to keep maintaining that if you are a D&D fan, you, you will be okay with the structure of this because it's, it's just campaign level. Um, but if you're not, I feel like the structure of this book is going to rub you the wrong way, much like it's chafing against me. Which is fine. That's why there's four of us here, exactly. and that's that why we do this, is hey, for the where, different opinions. Where the heck do we jump in, chapter one, book two, volume one, podcast three? What is, uh, what's the, what's the what are we at? 
The Night of the Dragons, Chapter 1. The Night of the Dragons. Yeah, so we're back at the inn. Uh, really, this could be the start of a second book. Uh, you know, if I'm, as I'm, I'm looking at this, if TSR wanted to make some money, uh, at the time, at the, we're looking early 80s, a lot of fantasy novels were really short. They were like these 200-page, 180-page, little tiny, uh, slim... Um, paperbacks that really got the same price point as a uh, normal size pa uh, paperback. So I'm looking at this uh, from a marketing standpoint going, boy, if you're writing books uh, based on modules and you want to cash in, this should have been a, a six book manifesto. And this would have been the, the, the first two, right? Why are we going with part one and part two? Because this I, feels like the beginning of a book. And I think that's a commercial thing from that time frame in the mm -hmm. 80s is you look at um, where you're looking at going from the dime store paperback and you're looking right. at the 80s was really that time, or the 70s and 80s was really a big time when you're looking at going from that 60s dime store paperback. Those ace, those ace paperbacks like Red Sonia. Yeah, exa exactly. You're Doc Savage. <laughs> and even even outside the fantasy and sci-fi right. area, you're looking at getting into you know those Creighton books that are so thick. You're looking at... It's, so really, this could be two books. We slam it together because it looks better on the shelf right. that way, and it'll hopefully sell more because it's a real novel. And I hate to keep beating a dead ring wraith, but I feel like like <laughs> this, this definitely was like a oh, but we're gonna do high fantasy here. We're gonna make it a giant tome, like like. But wait, there's more. <laughs> there's more. And, and you know, I, if if there were separate books, book two would be more of a novella. Just a little itty bitty guy up there on your shelf. <laughs> But we, we come back, uh, chapter one, book two, and... Hey, Tika's scrubbing floors. Tika's scrubbing, I was just going to bring this up. This is the first time we've had a, you know, just a bit of story without our giant, massive party since the preface in book one. Right. Um, and we learn that Solace has been attacked. Something mm -hmm. bad has happened in Solace. And now if I'm going to take off my I'm an angry uh, angry old man hat for a while, there is something very endearing yes, about this. Yes, give me my hat back. <laughs> <laughs> I really do like this whole we're returning to solace. You know, I mean, if I have to go with this in a book, I do like this juxtaposition of uh, it was kind of warm and friendly the first time, we're returning to it again, and now things, you know, have gone wrong and things are darker. Uh, I like Tika. I like this whole... I, I like the visuals that come to mind with this whole inn in a tree. So this is a cool place to be. I thought you were going to say that you like the visuals that come to mind with Tika. <laughs> are, you, are we talking mind boobs? We will get to mind boobs. You know, boobs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it right here. Uh, the, these books, uh, we, we've talked about how TSR wanted them uh, in the last podcast. Uh, to, to skew towards a, a younger demographic and how that Weiss and Hickman uh, even had to fight to keep the level of language that they have in this book. Um, that being said, TSR seemed to be okay with leaving in little, just like little hints at, uh, you know, overt sexuality in this book. And there's never a sex scene. Never. There's never a sex scene in any of these books, but it's that old, it's that old like, we've um, like we've talked about privately in the past, but... That old aspect of you have the movie and you have, you know, she walks into the room and he walks into the room and the shirt get and his shirt gets taken off and she takes off her boots and then you just have the close-up of the boot on the floor and then all of a sudden it's morning and they're wearing the L-shaped sheet. I was not going to talk about this here. I was going to wait until we got to the next book because that's where Hickman talks about it uh, when we get to a, a different scene. But uh, Hickman, we said in the last podcast 
comes out and throughout all of the annotations in the annotated version of the book, he comes out very strongly as being a Mormon. So maybe this is tied to his morality, but he is very strongly against having like love scenes in a book. And he calls them boot scenes, um, which is exactly what you just said. Exactly. He, yeah, he says that that's what happens in old Hollywood movies. Uh, where As soon as the boots come off, it's morning. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of illusions, although I will say, at, when we'll get to it, there is some definitely some... Um, um, really hot and heavy uh, visuals that they're trying to plant into adolescent minds, I think, uh, towards the end of this. Uh, I definitely with, agree. Oh, yes. With thighs and things oh, and yes. descriptions. So anyways, so uh, any boobs in this are not on the written page. They are only in your mind. Hence, mind boobs. <laughs> so Tika's scrubbing the floor. Speaking of... Ne yes. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> Tika's scrubbing the floor. We have this great juxtaposition here, this dichotomy between the happy, shiny, lovable solace that we came to, you know, love and that our characters love and our characters lived in for so long to come back into, essentially, this is an occupied city at this point. Right, and I've been waiting for this to happen. I, I, I've been wanting this kind of more stakes, and I like the idea that we're coming back. And yeah, hey, this is a book called, series from Dungeons and Dragons, and it is uh, uh, called Dragon Lance. I've been waiting for a Dragon Lance. I've been waiting for a lot more dragons. So if there's dragons attacking villages, that's just fine with me. And I, I'm I'm right there with you. I mm -hmm. I have the. The no stakes situation of mm -hmm. book one, volume volume one, book one, <laughs> and just all the problems I had with that are like almost immediately remedied in book two of volume one, <laughs> where there's oh my god, this town is destroyed. Even the end of the last home, they talk about the kitchen is wrecked and they're like having to cook somewhere else. They talked in about there. how the the inn is actually taken from the tree and was put back on the ground because the draconians didn't couldn't get into the trees very easily. That's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So it was, I mean, the entire which, which, town has changed completely. Which at the same time didn't make sense to me uh, either because because draconians in one scene in book one... They have wings. They, have, they had wings and uh, some and of them could claws. possibly fly and claw, but yet they but can't climb upstairs into the end of the last home too. It's not so much climbing up the stairs to the inn at the beginning of the evening. Oh my God. It's trying to get down from the inn at the end of the night. Well, if they wanted to get these kind of weird, uh, you know, what happens to draconians when they drink and can't get up and downstairs, uh, as we get on in the later books, I mean... They're in flying cities. So, I mean, how did that work? Spoiler alert. Sorry. Yes. Come on. That's Some not a spoiler. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, I'll let it go. occupied town. Right. Our heroes are back. Our heroes are in. They're almost back. They're uh, almost back. Does and it's the almost stranger a, show up first, or is he after? Um, I know that Tika's working, and all of a sudden, the companions all just stride in. Pretty much. That's right. No, no, the stranger gets there first, because I remember thinking, like, oh, is this Tannis? What's going on? Um, but there's a stranger there. The party comes back. Right. draconians in there that are being odd and sexually aggressive towards Tika. Tika. Yeah, and here's the... Wait, which, which, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I'm okay with interspecies dating. I'm perfectly <laughs> fine with that. However... When it goes from the line of, you know, the creepy dragon people that are lusting after, you know, the buxom barmaid, I don't know how we're supposed to feel. Are we supposed to be okay with the interspecies dating? Are we supposed to look at them going, okay, it's the weird, it's the weird, luring, littering soldiers and construction workers going after this <laughs> poor girl? 
I, I think we're is supposed to be just. Is it even possible, like biologically, if we between draconians and humans? I think we're supposed to be here? just disgusted by this display of the draconians. <laughs> um, I'm boy. I am going to sound like just Mister Eating a Lemon right here. But again, the where for you, Luke, uh, this is instant. The dragons are instantly remedying things for for you as soon as they get into this inn. My problem just continues because they are just sitting around, directionless, and literally sitting in a tavern waiting for something to happen. And it's, I am, I'm okay with this from a sense that they got some vision from some mystical unicorn. Okay, maybe I'm okay with the unicorn. <laughs> I'm okay with them getting this vision. But they don't understand it. All and, revelation and they, has not been given Exactly. Yet. They, they go and they get this artifact. They're like, now what? I don't, let's go home, I right. guess. I'm tired. We just, one of us... We've been, two of us died. Right. Two of us died. We've been gone for five years. We were in our, we came back to our hometown for all of ten minutes before right. we ran right. away again. And and I yeah. do feel like and this is really kind of extrapolating things that don't necessarily exist there. But maybe you know Hickman was responsible for the bulk of this plotting of this book. Maybe this is something to you know to do with his faith. You know where there's these kind of slow reveals uh, by prophets of different levels of things. You know I don't know. Which which works when you're dealing with you know massive timescales, but for this small condensed novel, for me, it's it's not it's not working out as well. But they are approached by a hooded elf, and I'm thinking Strider. <laughs> oh wait, no, it's Gilthanus. Okay, Strider was a human, first of all. <laughs> that is true. That is true. But this hooded guy is in the corner. I can almost see him smoking his big long pipe, right? Watching them as they're being, some of them are being too mouthy, right? And talking so they know what's going on. Um, and then the group uh, is, is captured by Draconians. Yes. Um, and we get yet more characters to our party. Yeah, so if you had it uh, a little bit twisted in your mind as to who was what, and, and let me tell you... Um, if you've noticed at the beginning uh, now of our last two podcasts, we've we've done kind of little um, theatrical interpretations from the book. Um, it is interesting in coming up with those. Uh, there are times where I will be going through pages and pages, and it will be like I know River Moon Love Wind is here. Hasn't said anything for the last five pages. Um, He's very stoic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so finding something that balances all the characters is really tough. And now to add to it, they're all going to be slammed into this this cage, this cart, this draconian prison cart. And... um, which, and for those of you paying attention, is actually a scene we did. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so you just heard it a little bit you, ago. You yeah. just heard it a little bit ago. Um, and they're all, and there are so many characters here all talking on top of each other. And if you notice, now, in that scene that we did, uh, I think it speaks to my point. We just did what people were saying, right? Their, their lines. Boy, would there have to be massive rewrites if this were to be made into a movie because it's who is saying what to whom, what's going on. And add to that, when you're in the book, you are jumping from people's points of view, characters' points of view, what's going on in their head. And uh, for me, a lot of this got really desperate. Uh, I feel um, like once we got to book two for myself, when we're in this cart, I'm at some of my lowest points reading reading this book. Yeah. I... In the cart, yes. Yeah. Once once we get to the point where they start, where they end up getting out of the cart, then things start rolling yes. for me. But yes, this entire scene in the cart, it's just 
okay, I'm just going to keep reading because I have no idea who is actually saying this. Right, Gold, Gold Moon, Lovejoy, is, they're, they're having their love thing again. They keep talking. Uh, oh, it drives me nuts. I would like to say, it, it came to me just a little bit ago about the changing between characters. It could be used to make it seem more frantic to you. Because mm-hmm. when I was reading through it, it could be used to show the confusion of combat. It could be used to show the confusion of we're all trapped. That's immediately it, what I thought. Yeah, of it, right could now. It, it could be. It could. It could go back to the you know the actual playing of Dungeons and Dragons again, where you have four guys around the table who keep talking at once. And are you in character? Are you out of character? Is this in game? Is this in <laughs> IRL? What are we doing here? Exactly. So and in, in, you know I I can let it go a little bit. There are some times where I got really annoyed with it. But in some cases, especially combat, I didn't mind it because it added to my feeling towards the combat of, okay, something's happening here. Oh, wait, something else is happening over here. Right. If there is a high point for this part, though, it is the addition of a character uh, oh. on the road to Pax Thargus uh, that I really enjoy. An old man with a grudge against trees. <laughs> Fizbin. <laughs> well, I gotta say, no, I, I'm, I'm there with you. One of my favorites. So funny. I, I do love Fizbin, and again, I think we've talked about, because he, Fizbin, right, is the old man that we talked He's about. He's the old the man beginning. at the beginning who's telling stories to children in the inn, but he never gets named at the beginning. Right. So this is kind of our DM, we referred to him as the last time. This is the guy who's was, been watching the group. Yeah, kind of a, ra- a random thought I had while we were recording. Right, and and definitely I think that that is what his character is supposed to have done. Um, again, I, I love the fact that we have different views of who what this character looks like, and I went back and I'm like, why was I thinking he was Gandalf? And I'll tell you, uh, the same time I ordered uh, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, I also ordered a Forgotten Realms series of books that has a main character who is a wizard, and all of the covers have him on it. He was instantly transplanted into my mind as this robe-wearing, giant, pointed hat guy. Um, and that's, that's what I had in my head. So, which which works, and that's understandable. And in, like I said, in this position for me, it was the little old man. <laughs> it was the little old man that is constantly like digging through his pockets because he can't figure out figure out what's going on. He's not really crabby, but he's not really happy either. It's kind of this, you know, that weird combination of the dungeon master from the old Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, and I was thinking about this later too, and the dude from Up. <laughs> wow. wow that is <laughs> so yep. either way he's short it's just this whole like da, 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 i don't have any bad guano um da, right. da, screw it fireball right <laughs> right and again for some people this might be a detraction but when this thing gets kind of funny and comedic and he is definitely there to to bring levity um i think it's when it's at its best when you kind of have these comic book ish uh kind of bad guys and kind of too many characters. It feels like I'm watching yeah, He-Man. It feels like I'm watching He-Man. Like I'm sitting Saturday morning surrounded by He-Man figures, and they're all just in this prison cart with me. Nobody knows who they yeah. all are. Fizzman's a relief from trying to remember everybody that is here. Right. And well, everybody that's so serious about everything, yeah, and yeah. he just comes in and... And on the other side of that, though, yeah. by this point, I remember everybody. I remember who they are. Right. Actually, I'm getting attached to them. Maybe right. I'm getting like some weird Stockholm syndrome. Like you gotta read this book, dude. Like yeah. I don't. See, I do. I'm getting attached to them because, like I said in the first podcast, is the three of us right now, Paul, uh, Luke, and myself, are actually playing a D and D campaign 
where we're actually playing kind of similar characters to some uh, of these people. And this just totally goes back to my point as to if you are a D&D person, <laughs> that is why you are going to like this book because you see yourself in these characters. And it's this is exactly what marketing wanted, is that they are going to populate this world with every character you can play in D&D. And so everybody who is a D&Der who is going to read this book has a touchstone for them to use. You know, the glass cannons got Raceland, right? The barbarians got Caramon, right? And and so there, you instantly identify with somebody um, and feed into it uh, off your own nostalgia or, or or whatever. At least that's that's my take on it because it does feel like when once once the defense comes for a lot of this, it comes from a standpoint of this is just like it always leads from this is just like. Well, TSR, I'm sorry <laughs> that this book came out probably 30 years too early. Yeah, how how long did this book come out at before you were born? Six years. Oh, yeah. good lord. I was going to say 30 because I didn't start playing Dungeons and Dragons until like ugh, a year ago. But, um, so they're in the cart. They escape. The elves come to help. And I'm... I'm Once they're in the elven city... Man, I feel like I'm reading Lord of the Rings again. I've got a confession to make. I... I I've never liked the elves from Lord of the Rings. Uh, I've always found that stuff to be boring. Uh, going back to what Claude was saying, <laughs> I usually play an elf. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, uh, I've always loved kind of their nature tree hippie mentality. I've always been attracted to that, but I've always found the stuff... Um, the, the, the douchey, snotty, nose-in-the-air, we're better than humans because you yeah. people are so young, uh, yeah. always pisses me off. I, I, I find it kind of I'm difficult... It. Yeah, I, yeah, I find it difficult to read through, or I at least always find it... It seems like elves are always the breath of air that gets taken uh, in a book, you know, while, while the rest of the chapters are all shouting at you, grab the swords, do the this, do the that! Then you get to the elven worlds in these fantasy books, and so I was like... <sighs> Everything's beautiful, and the leaves are all beautiful. And you know, they're they're the breath of fresh air. Which for some people they love that, but I start to get uh, kind of bored. (laughs) Well, yeah, and whether it's again, whether it's the elves or it's the Vulcans or (laughs) it's whoever is thinking Vulcan. Whoever is looking down on humanity here, there's always going to be. You know, there's always going to be one character who is of that race. Who's going to have some sort of epiphany about how the emotion, oh. the emotional humans are really okay, and maybe they've got something there. And maybe, and maybe even they're half human. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Spock. <laughs> yeah, well, Come on, authors, what are you doing? I, I, oh, oh, I am just, no. just realizing this right now. Yeah, but yeah. I am. I the writing at some points has been lazy in this book. It's mm-hmm. been boring and has been but man the way they describe this city the the um the illustration of the spiraling towers and see i got bored there because you, it's the oh, same man. as every other elven city you've yeah. ever heard of i don't right. care. I, 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 per, I don't care i am you know i mean there's not going to be lord of the rings book 4 that's not going to happen and maybe i'm just looking for that in other places but i am loving this until we get into the politics of, well, the elves are going to do this, and I don't care what you humans it, do. Yeah, and, until we get into, until we get into the prequels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring up these discs again. I mean, here we are with the discs, but there's kind of no plan. Again, I feel it's so weak when our protagonists, when up until this point, have 
pretty much been powerless. They're, they're, they're just being kind of whisked around by the, the plot threads of this book. And, and they don't have a direction. They're not pushing. They're not driving for any kind of a, a goal. Even yet, at this point, they're just stuff is just happening to them, which I feel is is so weak. It's so weak for me. Well, and it's 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 that whole like you said, it's that plot driven that like ex machina idea. It's mm-hmm. like okay, we don't know what to happen. Fireball from the sky. Okay, I guess we go over here. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, again, it's it is that lazy writing, but. I feel we start to roll after we af- after the chapter and a half of Elven history and politics, yeah, right? And we're gonna add another character in, <laughs> yeah, uh, Lil. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm blanking. Lorana. 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 A love interest. A love. F- yes, a love interest. So, so we move on. So we move on. So, so Hickman makes a big deal uh, about how everything in Dragonlance he likes to write in threes. Okay, he likes to have a a triangle of conflict around a character that balances them out, or other things. This is why. Isn't there a French term for that? <laughs> so he likes to make a a trois of, of problems. Um, so so he says that's why is there's three moons, right? We haven't talked about this, but on the uh, on Kryn there are three moons. There there's the regular moon, there's a red moon and there's a black moon. Okay, a dark I, moon. You know yeah, I mean, you can only see the black moon if you're a black mage yeah, or something like that. Well, where was I missed that? Yeah, is that a yeah. book? Yeah, um, later on is that Oh, it? I might be drawing this from some of the others. It holes mushing together, but there are th- there are three moons, there are three moons. That, that that reflect the colors of of the mages. So, so the conflict with Tannis is supposed to be between his love of two women, right? One who is well, one, one who we know at least is kind of the warrior chick, right? To begin with, and the other is at least Nat right now the princess, right? And and here I'm, I mean, Lorana, uh, boy, this is only eighty four, so I'm feeling she's kind of one of these stock, one of these kind of stock characters. Uh, she just seems so over the top melodramatic in love with Tannis. She's a princess. Oh, I will say once again, Lord of the Rings came into mind. Strider and oh yeah, what I forget oh, yeah. the other yes, elves' names. I'm gonna that go other places. Um, what I thought. I'm gonna go to every '70s sword and sandal Tyler's movie daughter. where there is there is some sheer chiffon wearing princess who's all over the all over the, the the main character for no other reason other than he is just the main character. Now I'm okay, I should come back and say no, they give lots of reasons why Lorana is in love with Tannis, and it, it all makes sense. And but now did, after did, all that I've said Did you read I, that history? I, I, I yes. Yeah. I, I I I hate to say it. We need to talk I like about that. this. I like okay. to, I like I like Yeah, no, story. it's it's okay. a little out of place. It is. It's but a, I didn't mind it. it. I didn't mind it. I didn't get to it. But if if you actually look at it, I did have to step back at one point and go, okay, that's weird, because there is. If you read the if you read the section, there is this whole thing on how Tannis is half elf because his mother was raped and then she died, and so he was raised pretty much as Loriana's brother. Right. Yes. And again, but again, going to the demographics of this book, uh, when we find out that full story, which comes in later books, it's brutal. <laughs> and so you're like, wow, you wanted 12 year olds to read this? But yeah. Okay. Keep going. No, I, I, uh, yeah, it, it is. It is a little weird. I, I will say, I, I, I had two moments with Tannis where I had these weird incest vibes. 
um, they're talking about KTR at one point. And I, it's this little, it's just this little paragraph, and I, it's, it's in book one, and I can't remember exactly where it is, but where it talks about how Flint and Tannis adopted Kitiara, Raistlin, and Karaman, and took care of them. I'm like, yeah. Wait, whoa, whoa, is this like some sort of weird, you adopt them and then you're dating them thing? I have to yeah. go back and read it. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes it was. Yeah. Yes it was. That was the other spectrum. Yeah. Because oh, Tannis was adopted by Loriana's family, and so now he's adopted Kitiara, Raistlin, and Karaman. Uh, oh, no, that poor, that poor And then it's elf. just this right, weird, right. like... Oh, my yeah. <laughs> and then they, 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 Hickman in his side notes goes on and on about how there's this big kind of uh, story of Lorana and, and that, you know, finding her character and going from kind of this, you know, kept princess to finding her strength and power. And by the end of this, <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, again, reading the side notes, I feel this is your first time out. This is your first novel. I think these guys were really invested into their characters. I know from reading the notes that they played as these characters a lot in D and D, right? So, yep. So I think I think that there's a lot of backstory going on in their minds. They're more connected to these characters than maybe what they bled out onto the page here. But I don't see this awesome arc for for Lorana any no. any more than any other kind and of it, it superhero. It could have been left out. Story the, the whole thing about Tannis and Flint adopting these kids that could have been left out. They could have just been people that they met. Yep. This whole thing about. Tannis and Lorana and him being adopted by Lorana. I, mean, I, I don't know where it goes in the future books. Right. They could have just been like neighborhood right. friends when they were in Qualanesti and they were so young that him being half elf didn't matter. And I think they did I think they did that partly to establish the fact too that Tannis and Flint, just simply by race itself, are quite a bit older than everybody yeah. else. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, that's covered. That's covered. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Again, I'm just going to go back. I think, again, I'll cut them slack, even though I'm harping on it, but that's what we're here to do. Um, but I just feel it's a little amateurish. I mean, we're looking at their first novel out of the gate. I think they're trying to create, uh, you know, boy, I'm going to beat the ring wraith again. Uh, but they're trying to evoke Tolkien. That's, at this time, that's going to be their go-to. Uh, and, and he did an excellent job of creating this really deep world that felt old and ancient and and had all of these you know i mean he was a linguist so he has uh, everything was spot on with what he did they're going to try to copy this and this is like the 80s cartoon version of an epic movie yes you, you know yes exactly and again we have these things that they keep trying to jam in here that tsr keeps trying to jam in here and you can really feel it right from taking it away from the actual authors who like Luke said, Luke liked the Luke liked all these descriptions of the Elven city, and also, what do you do when people come to your city? You have a feast. Right. And guess what? Do you remember what happened at the feast? Uh, I don't. I know that it's been, a, it's, it's, right. it's been a while since we've had a song. Uh, yeah, the oh. songs come. And and speaking of how they're jamming stuff in. They talk about druids here. I'm like, so there's druids too? Like they just really quickly, it's just dropped in, like you said, mm -hmm. just dropped in. I don't think we ever see this again to, to what I'm trying to remember. I don't know if we see druids again, but in, now there's druids as well. Uh, it's not said really, I don't think, what race they belong to or anything, but there's druids. Uh, but we and do that's... get our first hint, and this here we are, we're book two, we're starting to get our first hints of Verminard. There is a there is a discussion, I believe, at the dinner. Is yes, that they discuss Verminard, and I do want to. I, I might just cut this out. I just want Clob's audible response when I show him the Elven Hymns music from Dragonlance Module Two. <laughs> 
Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, um, this requires, uh, this is a bass piano part that I'm looking at right here for the Elven hymn that Tannis sings at the dinner. Those of you who uh, are able to play piano and able to read music here, uh, we have both our treble clef and our bass clef uh, stabs in here, and you need about seven fingers on each of your hands. <laughs> I know. Wow. Yeah, when I, the first time I flipped that page, like I couldn't like see it. You know, we're this makes to... my disappointment on the fact that Tannis actually starts singing a song you, so much more. You know what? I'm gonna make it this cool. I, I promise you, listeners. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't do this, uh, but I in in Hickman's uh, side notes. He does say that there has been, there was a couple like artists they knew, some sort of folk artists that they knew that turned some of these into real songs. I'm going to find these <laughs> and, and we're going to play them on the show. Maybe, you guys need maybe to hear we'll, this. Uh, we'll, we'll link them on our Facebook page. Link them on the Facebook yeah. page. And we can have a little discussion in the comments. Maybe, maybe in the next episode or, or a few down the road. Before we get out of Dragonlance, we'll have to hear what some artists, maybe we'll do it as a bonus uh, episode at the end, uh, some sort of music, music and it's poetry just, reading episode. Yes, <laughs> yes, we will just we will play the background music and we will all cold read. Yes, yeah, so. Dragon Lance, Summer of Love. When August gets hot, Dragon Lance turns up the heat. Um, so, anyway, so we talk about Verminard, who again, uh, Which, who again, again, super lazy naming. Because um, he's vermin. I mean, Hickman in his in his annotations. I hate to keep jumping to him, but I just like to point him out because he he, he tells us like it's named after vermin. I'm like, yeah, really? We know. Wait, 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 wait. Come on. He's named after vermin. I know. So, I so wait, you're telling me that Darth Sidious was named after the word insidious. <laughs> what? And Darth Vader was named after the word invader. My and Darth Bane is like a bane to existence? My mind is what blown is with these right now. Okay. But, well, but I do enjoy, that being said, I do enjoy getting a little bit more backstory here about Verminard and mm -hmm. getting a little bit more information rather than just he's the big baddie in the sky that we have no idea about but we're supposed to fight him somehow. Well, this is, right. what are we, we're, we're somewhere around 300 pages into volume one. Yeah. And... On something you were complaining about last time, we have it. We have we have the mission. The bad guy. The mission. <laughs> right, right. And so here's what the mission kind of is, to my understanding. Fill in where you can. Um, the elves need to escape because, like Tolkien's elves, they're just jettisoning the the continent. They're they're leaving. Um, the bad guys are gathering in Solace. Uh, the whole time I was getting this impression that they were like invading from the north, um, but now they're kind of like made their home in Solace. Pax Tharkis, where our heroes were being like brought to in their cages, uh, is is like a slave colony. They're they're using them as uh, a bunch of elves and humans as slaves, and so now we have this slave liberation that needs to happen. So the, the, they need they need to liberate the slaves, and this will create a diversion, allowing the elves to flee. Well, I hate this right now because it's like you're sitting at a dinner table with all these beautiful, wonderful elves, and like Klob said, they are so irritating that they're like, we need you to risk your lives freeing Pax Tharkis so we can all just leave. So we can get on our boats and go back to Avalon. Go back to Avalon. Right. I don't even think in those, in the slave pits, I don't even think there were elves. It was just, let's go get the humans, have them sacrifice themselves so we can leave. And our heroes, like they know this to, from what I read. I mean, they this is the mission. This is what they're they're... They talk about, and they're like kind of okay with this. Like, uh, 
to me, there should be some big scene of just yelling it out about how, you know, you think you are so high and mighty, but you're going to leave us all to die. And there was no... You'd think with Tannis and his position, like, being caught between the humans and the elves. What a perfect place there, to have this. Yeah, there Tannis was, being the focal there, point. There, it was, it was, a, I'm, I'm putting my fingers together about an inch apart now because I'm on the radio <laughs> and we should be able to do this. Um, I just dated myself because I said radio. Um, <laughs> podcast. Uh, but there's this tiny little blurb in there where Tannis is ashamed of himself because he's part elven. But it's so lost in everything. Right. It's just like, it's, you know, how can my people treat humans this way? This is, it, 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 the line actually says something to the effect of, this is why I left in the first place. Right. Okay. But it's okay. so yeah. lost in there. Yeah, I feel it there's is. a huge missed opportunity here with Tannis being half-elf and half-human, that he, he should be being torn apart, pulled in two directions, or be the fulcrum that's trying to bring them together. Something, I feel it's all, this is all lost. And there's, there's, there's a lot being lost here. I mean, there's, they're definitely, it's, it's like they realize they haven't done any world building with like, I mean, like all of a sudden, just like this rush of elven politics and this big plan, and this Lord Verminard, and there's humans there. We got to save them, but the elves want to escape. And like, I even to the point where I forgot why. Okay, they went but, to Pax. Okay, can you somebody illuminate me on this? Because I read this once, and God help me, I won't read it again for a while. Okay, <laughs> probably return to it at some point. But this is what I got out of it. Tannis suggests that they split up to keep the discs safe. Uh, but they, then everybody in the group says that they need to stay together even though it's more dangerous. Tannis then says, it's the logical thing to do so we won't do it. I actually kind of like that. Right? <laughs> like, again, th again, that references back to a D&D campaign yes. where we, you know what? How <gasps> <laughs> I'm doing Muppet hands in the air. <laughs> How should we storm the castle? Well, we could storm the castle. We could... Uh, sneak in and raise the porticus, or there's actually somewhere where we could swim through the sewer if everybody holds their breath for long enough time. Yeah. No, we swim through the sewer because yeah. that sounds the most fun. Yeah, but this well, is... Here's the thing that makes no sense to me. This is what makes me mad, though. This That makes no sense. Like, it's cool. I get the idea of, like, oh, the enemy doesn't know, what, it thinks we're going to do this, so we're going to do the exact opposite. No, they're being stupid, and so are the elves. They have these discs that the magical last unicorn told them to take, right? And, and, and they still don't know what these discs are for, so instead of keeping them safe with the elves, or like, hey, let's just back off, we got to find out what that, go to some shaman go to there was druids go ask the druids what these discs are for no we are going to go on this cockamamie mission to free the slaves just just the eight of us nine of us twelve of us whatever there is the dirty dozen and we're taking the discs with us this is like luke being like hey i got the death star plans i'm going straight to coruscant <laughs> right like and i'm gonna go visit the emperor uh like like this makes no sense what they're doing here um, yeah, okay, I understand what you're saying with that. I, I, I Defend it! I do agree with that. Um, again, I'm the old D&D player. I have to defend. It is that as It is the aspect of sending the small party to go. It's the Rogue One aspect. But they should have gotten rid of the discs. The Take the is. discs, give them to, you know, wh why are they, why are because they? It's because if you dangerous. give them to the elves, the elves are leaving. If you, you, The idea here is we don't want to give them to the elves purely because the elves are kind of being jerks about right. wanting to well you should leave us the discs no we worked for this these are ours you're not better than us we didn't get these for you we got these for us and, and, true, it's, and true, it's, just fair as, it's just as dangerous to send them with the elves because the elves are going to be attacked by lord verminard's forces this is true they're coming and and unlike uh like and that's say, kind of the impending 
other and unlike other elves, these elves do feel even worse than say Tolkien elves. I mean, they do feel like they would stab you in the back. These elves, so I do get that. Probably not wanting to get into the elves. Well, and there's these all... elves do not seem friendly. Yeah. Friendly. No, no and there's even whatsoever. more. There's even more to that. You know that Loriana aspect. I mean, it really, it really is Tolkien esque. It really is. Okay, I am the head politician elf, and I don't like humans, and you people are stupid. Here's my very pretty daughter who's in love with kind of a dude. <laughs> hey, let's talk about that. Uh, so while we're there, uh, this is where uh, some more of that TNA comes in a little bit that they're trying to to get those adolescents all fired up with. Lorana comes to talk to Tannis, and it said she she does so in a, a see-through nightgown. Um, so, so again, every elf, every woman, every woman in this uh, book. I mean, you look at the marketing standpoint. The the covers, the art art at the time was done by Larry Elmore. Everybody, women especially, are very sexualized, and then they're all talked to as being extremely uh, beautiful, you know, and uh, and things like that. Again, just kind of continuing that on, and then to kind of keep with the high school flavor of it. The stuff they talk about is, again, just like hallway, I'm gonna love you forever. You don't understand I have something to do. It's almost like kind of the, maybe one of those uh, sometimes movies in the 70s and 80s played up to this weird kind of fetish I guess of like the older man and there'd be just this young woman who didn't know anything about the world who just I want to and come with you I want to be you don't understand what I've seen and you know that kind of and stuff see, that's the thing too where we look at and in here that I really kind of enjoyed about the the Tannis love triangle uh-huh because instead of being the young naive girl mm -hmm. it's actually she's an elf it's, mm -hmm. She's technically age-wise girl, but she is. <laughs> yeah. She's always she's the old naive girl. Right. And then from just the little bit we know of Kit at this point, Kit is the young worldly fighter girl. Right. And so that he right. I did like the fact that they did kind of flip that a little bit. But you could read it right. But you, you're right. You could read it right away that it's like I want to come with you, and I'm going to renounce my family for you. And shut up. You're an elf. You're, <laughs> you're a rich girl who's lived as a rich girl your entire 145 years, or however old you are right now. You're not going to war. They're shunning those old 70s girls and getting to a, a powerful woman of the 80s. <laughs> Shoulder pads and all. Shoulder pads and all. Pants, suits and all. I didn't really. It wasn't my favorite chapter of the book. But you know what? It kind of it built a little bit of a character relationship between them. You got to delve into um, Tannis's backstory a little bit, and you know what? The chapter really wasn't that long, so it's that's true. It was. I mean, I it looked a, at it earlier. The smallest it was chapter like in the book. Two or three pages. Uh, conversation between Tannis and, and Lorana. Lorana. But there is a great piece here that I looked at and that I saw. Um, there's a whole section here, and the story goes. They're standing, you know, they're standing in the moon, in the light of the moons, mm -hmm. talking, and we find out that Tannis is wearing a ring that was given to him by Loriana. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. and so that. he gives it back to her mm -hmm. and says, "I can't. My heart is not completely yours anymore. I don't deserve to wear this." She takes it, whips it into the woods. <laughs> At which point we find out that Taz has been sitting here watching this oh, the entire yeah. time. Taz, my and Taz and, and not stealing the ring in the woods. Never. But Taz looks down and gives a great it's it's a great piece for his character, goes, Oh, you know, I bet one of them's going to want this at some point. So he picks up the expensive ring, puts it in his bag. 
to hold it for other people because <laughs> he found it in the woods. And oh, and again, yeah. those are the kind of things though that I feel. I know I've been hating on a lot of this stuff, but that really make the book in a lot of ways work for me is when you have this really kind of funny. You know, juxtaposition of kind of really adolescent high school. Yeah, uh, you know, dramatic it's, taking it's itself too serious. Too yes, seriously, yes. and then it that's uh, almost like they put a they know it, and so they do a little but um ching <laughs> at the end of it. Exactly, all. because yeah. why why wouldn't the kinder the you know the thing that is you know almost a house elf at this point, <laughs> right? <laughs> why wouldn't you just be hanging out in the woods watching them have this deep discussion, and happen to be standing right where she threw the ring. Right. And the, again, the whole idea of he never steals anything. I'm just going to hold on to this because I'm sure they'll want it back at some point. The luck of the kinder. And uh, again, we're, we're going to outfit everybody because it's talked again after this, then going into chapter eight, that Tika, Tika gets some armor from Gilthanus. Oh, and, yeah. And they talk about how they have to cut her skirt all the way up to reveal her, I quote, Fluffy white panties. <laughs> <laughs> so again, and, and then we find out, uh, or we, we knew this. This was kind of building throughout yeah. the couple of chapters that Caramon has the hots for little Tika. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know what? I, I, it's funny to say, but I kind of like this. The juxtaposition. I'm, I'm using that word way too much in this. Uh, but between you have this uh, kind of over the top dramatics. I feel like when Tannis and Lorana. Uh, are, are kind of doing their thing. It feels way too much. Um, and when Gold Moon, Love Wind, Blood Joy uh, has their whole love thing, it feels way too it's, much. It's so stressed. It's a, these like make more sense. It's just like it's this total just barroom relationship that these two have. Like I find you attractive. I find you hot. And they're just together. It's and then, it's it's the it's the oafish linebacker in in, in the foot in the high school football movie. Yeah. And cheerleader number three. Yeah. You're my woman. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I just find him so cute. Yeah. And it's. it's <laughs> This makes sense, although then I don't. Well, I think we'll get there. Yeah. Never mind. I'm Definitely. gonna. I'm gonna but talk we begin, about we it begin this we little bit of th this little bit of a flirtation, which, I, like you said, I really like this little bit of a flirtation between Tika and Caramon, just simply because we don't we don't have that ungodly oppressive feeling of you know. Oh, Gold Moon and Riverwind are so in native love with each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and and the tennis love triangle. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just kind of, okay, we're going to flirt a little bit, and we have something to make Caramon smile. Because I, 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 at this point in the novel, too, have felt bad for Caramon, because he seems like such a nice guy. Yeah. And he's got all he's got to do is take care of his brother. Right. And his brother is constantly making comments to him about... Just verbally yeah, telling just, him. Yeah. 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 Uh, I will say, though, sure enough, the rule of three, like you said, soon enough, there's going to be somebody else. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Who is decides you, you, to ruin the Caramon and Tika. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so you, don't, you don't have time for a woman when you're taking care of your invalid brother. <laughs> right, exactly. And who's going to take precedence here? I pointed at Paul as I was saying you because he, <laughs> again, in my head, it's very much Caramon. <laughs> so then we have another draconian fight with draconians, and then, as if we didn't need another character, we bring in another one. There he and is. This, this bother, bothers me so much because we bring in Eben, right? And we're going to start alluding to the fact that this guy is not trustworthy. And then the rest of the this book, they're going to talk about how there's somebody here who's going to betray us. And you've just brought in like the guy I, with you, you like twiddling his I, thumbs. I am. I'm thinking about this too much in my head when I'm reading it. Like initially, I'm I'm right there with you. Like, well, pff, 
duh, it's Eben. Yeah, but you know what? And then they start talking, like, they start, he starts blaming Gilthanas a bunch. Yes. Like, oh, and man. you're like, well, Gilthanas is new. He could be the bad guy. He's new, too, and yep. Eben makes a good point, and I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking it'd be a lot cooler if Gilthanas was the traitor. Yes. Whoa, all this, this huge treachery. Yeah. And I want to bring up something here, too, with the fact that you guys automatically jumped with Eben. This was Ebon to me. <laughs> All right, yes. Yes. <laughs> is Ebon from something? I don't know. But <laughs> this was the capital E was e was was Ebon. Oh, just E-bon. to sound even douchier and elder. <laughs> um, so yeah, we pick they pick up Eben and they're on their way. They go they reach Pax Tharkis, right? So finally the end is in sight, right? I mean we're getting there, we're we're ready to kind of get to the final battles, right? So we get to chapter nine. Um, to make things even more complicated with naming structures, instead of just going to Pax Tharkis, they have to go through something called the Slamori, which is just described as the secret way leading to Pax Tharkis. Which yeah, I felt just kind confusing. of a, a layer of unnecessary kind of language. Like, again, uh, I, Hickman always talks about how he tries to create layers to make it feel like there's more depth to this to this land or this world than there really is. I feel like this is the kind of stuff that he's talking about, and not a lot of it really works. Where it's just like, yes, there's a secret way. It's called the uh, uh, the slumori. Like maybe he was like eating coleslaw. They, the have, to go, they have to go through the slums. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, yeah. You know what? And I'm, I'm gonna bring this back to like me just getting back into the book towards the end right here. and you know what there is we're on this place called Kryn there's a place called Keishu there's a place called Solace why wouldn't there be a place called Slamori Slamori and see I took the whole Slamori aspect too as you can't have you can't automatically jump the level to fight the boss at the end of the level right away you right. have to make it through it's the same level. You, it's the same level of Castlevania that you've played four different times already. They've just changed the color scheme. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you still have to get through that level in order to get to the next boss. In order to get to the next big boss to right. finish the game. And I couldn't help it. I had this in my head because Evan then is hesitant to go. He doesn't want to go. And I just what I see here is them. They're all up, kind of like looking down into this. Valley is what I took it, and, and into Pax Tharkis, the secret way, and they need to kind of get underneath Pax Tharkis to get through these caverns or the you know the dungeons that are underneath to to sneak up on them. And I'm just seeing the Wizard of Oz when they're all looking at the witch's castle, and all those green faced whatevers are walking in. I'm just hearing oh we oh. That's all I can think of with this. Okay, at this point though, uh, like you said, Luke, I am getting back into this novel. Uh, I feel like from here on out. Um, I know I've been the real wet blanket on this one, but uh, I really enjoy the ride from here on out. Um, when, especially once we get through Slamori and into the the belly of Pax Tharkis. Uh, oh yeah. The first thing they they find this this tomb right kind of where the, there's a this is super cool to me. I don't, yeah. I don't know what it is about Weiss and Hickman do undead so good. They do it yeah. well. They need to stay in the dungeons. Is Write where some these zombie are. books. Hey, hey, Write Weiss some... Hickman, get back together, make some like zombie ghost books because you're good at this. You're good at creepy. Very, I love it. Very good at creepy. I love this whole um and and I'm a big fan. I said this I think in episode uh in the last episode that I'm a big fan of like Conan. I love that 70s Conan feel. 
um, which this has, I think, where we have these kind of the ladies have, are are all kind of you know extremely beautiful, and the, you have all your big barbarians and stuff, and they don't always fight dragons. I get sometimes tired of the dragons. Here we've got a giant slug, and that's something that's always happening in a lot of these old seventies pulps. They're always fighting like kind of giant salamanders and slugs yeah. and oozes and, and, and giant alligators or boa constrictors. I kind of like that that kind of more primeval feel, you know, where everything's kind of dark and dank and in swamps and in dungeons and they're fighting more oozes and slimes. So this part for me was great, this giant slug. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm to totally... I, I love gross, dark, creepy. Yeah. I'm already getting back into it with these whispers of a traitor... And something's happening. Yeah. And then there's creepy ghosts. And then there's a gross slug. And then there's <laughs> some super awesome sword that Tannis gets at the end. The main character's cool now. He has yeah. this cool sword. Like, right. Why did this, uh, but, why I mean, did this bit, take so long? A bit contrived. I mean, it just kind of appears in his hand because there was like this this tomb, this elf. Or, uh, who was it that I, was... I wanted, And see, that's the thing. Is I wanted more explanation. I wanted some otherworldly reason for Tannis to be able to wield this sword. Right. Like Caramon picked it up and right. it burned his hand and he had to set it down or something. You I, know, I, I want I, I wanted just, a little bit I wanted a little bit more of the forge and fantasy. I think mm-hmm. this just adds to the mystery of kind of what is going on. We have the discs mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden the sword is appearing. I feel like this entire book so far has just been character development for the later books. Like it's just been kind of Here's the start of a quest. Now let's get to know uh, some of the characters a little bit more. Let's give them some cool things. Well, and, and, and see again, and again, that's a D and D thing as well, where it's like, okay, you found the sword of Aragoth. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you, it's something. It's something. I I, I have, it, it, it's something the DM like looked was looking through a manual one time and right. like, hey, this is kind of cool. I want to put this in a campaign. Hey, you guys stumble upon this sword. Right. Well, they <laughs> they talk about it's the tomb of Kith Cannon. Who is a pre-cataclysm warrior guy, and then Caramel or uh, Tannis just ends up with his sword, and they even say the sword's name is like Worm Slayer, uh, is the name of the name of the sword. Oh, I see. I forgot about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so that they say that. Oh, up. see, and I jumped. I jumped on that. I'm like, oh, geez, Worm like a dragon. Yeah. Like, yeah, worm yeah, with yeah. Wings. yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, right. exactly. So the fire verb. Again, maybe it's because of where we've been that this has been all like this is picking up for me and I'm like, "Woohoo!" There's also the callous part of me that says, "Yeah, so do we ever learn about Kith Cannon again? We'll find out." But or Worm Slayer or where this comes from? I'm sure one of those 190 books TSR cranked out had to do with d- deal with it. Uh, you know, when, when I'm reading this right now, I don't know that there's 190 books. <laughs> right. But I'm enjoying the mystery behind this sword. Yeah. 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 I've kind of forgotten about the discs. For something that's... But I'm enjoying the sword. Well, that's because we haven't found the magical hat that allows us to read the discs. Right. (laughs) Well, and and I'm a guy who likes, you know, Dragon Slayer and Beastmaster and all those kind of 70s, 80s sword and sandal. Hey, yeah, so the guy gets a sword called Worm Slayer. It's a cool name. I'm with it. Whatever. We're going. But we're in Pax Tharkis now. Chapter 10. Tharkis. Are they, they... Did we get split up now? Yes. Yes, this is where we get split up. Uh, chapter 11, end of chapter 10, beginning of chapter 11. Well, we get this chain 11. room. I just like the fact that like the name of the chapter is Chain Room. Chain room. Yes, uh, Chain Room. Yeah. 
Yeah, because well, this should, is uh, something the, the, janky is going on. It, it, it puts the notion on its skin. It should be said there's these giant chains. So they prominently feature later on in the book. So they're setting up kind of the final set piece. It's kind of like I almost feel like here we are, we're at the end of the movie. You know, and the camera is doing a pan and scan of the the castle and showing the chain room and everything like this. This is the setup, guys. This is where all the action's gonna happen. And see, this is where, and this is gonna go so far down the sci-fi rabbit hole that yeah, finally sci-fi. I hope that I hope that somebody understands <laughs> a this. comment that's not related to D and D. This was oh, but it is <laughs> no because this was so. Sorry. I'm throwing my hat against the wall. <laughs> this was this was so crawl. Oh, okay, Crawl, I accept. Not yeah. Crawl the Conqueror. Call, the, the, no, that crazy movie. Yes, the crazy Crawl. 70s yes. Crawl movie with the, with the big Sword, sandals, the and end. lasers. Yes, sword, <laughs> sandals, lasers, and a weird boomerang. Have you guys what? seen this movie? I have, I have never no idea what Oh, my God, about. you have to. Listeners, so pause right now. Go look up Crawl on YouTube. Just watch a trailer. Wow. <laughs> and make sure to come back. It, is, come back. it is, but there are moments in that movie that are pure brilliance. I love Crawl, yeah. And there are moments that, and that's one of the things where once they break into the bad guy's castle, mm -hmm. you do, like you said, you have that surround where all of a sudden you're, you have, th you have cameras flying through the castle to set up different rooms that are going to come into play. Yeah, so you know where you're at when these characters are split up, like you said, and they're yes. doing different things around this whole last set piece, you know what's there going on. There is all that, but then the, the bigger issue we have here is the splitting up of the dynamic duo, Tass and Flint are separated. It's so funny because I never saw them as the dynamic duo and I so accept uh, uh, Fizbin and Taz I as being the duo. And this is where I see R2 and C-3PO. Okay. Them bumbling okay. around this castle, this is R2 and C-3PO. I was so happy but, but when, they, when they got Taz and Fizbin together and just their interaction between those characters Right. Just made me laugh. It, it is. I don't, don't want to feel like I'm, I'm, dis I'm disappointed that it happened, but it's just, I was so used to it. There's always been this like back and forth between them, and they had that little moment um, in the swamp when Flint loses his axe and his hat, or just his mm -hmm. hat, and then passes off with his new friend. Maybe Flint's out there getting jealous. I don't know. I'm gonna say they're setting this up to me. Weiss and Hickman, or maybe just Hickman, uh, watched the first Star Wars movies a couple times, and they were just like, okay, we got Fizzman and Tass, that'll be R2-D2 and C-3PO, they're going to be off on their own, doing, like, opening the, uh, you know, opening shield generators, they're going to be getting them out of different things, then you're, then you're, then you're going to have, you know, our heroes... Shut down all crash compactors <laughs> at the detention level! No, no, shut them all down! <laughs> right? And, like, and, and see, I saw that, I saw this a completely different way. This was... See, I, th this for me was what if oh, what if Ben Kenobi took see, took R two D two with him when he went to shut off the tractor? But no, we got Tannis <laughs> Kenobi fighting I, Vader I, I in the courtyard on this. One. I love that idea. <laughs> oh, man, come on, Ben. <laughs> and with this, with this weird like. Um, with this weird Reverend Jim from Taxi thing figured into <laughs> Fishman, with right. just the just the well. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> that is the voice that I had in my head. Now it will forever be him. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> um, okay, uh, again, now we're going to uh, chapter 11. Uh, Taz and uh, Fizbin bumble around together. Um, again, I, I have put in my notes, I put down, I should hate this, and I don't. I, I love, love it. it. I, I, love, I it love Taz and Fizbin. The, 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 the immediacy of how dangerous this dark elf is. Mm-hmm. 
One of the things that I do love here is the Scooby-Doo aspect of this. Yes. It is the, it is the, we're getting to find out who the real big baddie is. We're going to pull a mask off somebody later. But first, let's look for clues. Let's split up, gang. Yeah, right. That, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yes, yes. But here we have Goldmoon saying uh, that Verminard knows the discs are here. Uh, bec because uh, there's a presence linked. I have not felt in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Lord Vader can sense uh, that his son is near. I told I'm not kidding. It was so blatant when she said this in the book that I literally in my head immediately jumped to Luke in the back of Shuttle Tidarium <laughs> flying past that Star Destroyer on the way to Endor. I should have brought the disc with me. Yeah. I'm endangering the mission. There's lots of command ships. Like I'm gonna, like like. Don't I don't get, know. Don't get jittery. Fly casual. You know, I, I mean, I've just... It was so blatantly Star Wars right there that, again, I feel like they are pulling from a hodgepodge of things. They, and some stuff is sticking to the wall and other things aren't. They definitely are. And I'm going to hit this from a different... Like, the same way Clob has been, but from a different perspective. Yeah. In Dungeons & Dragons, there is detect magic, but it doesn't range that far and you don't know exactly what it is. Right. So, right. yes, they are. It, it's definitely a... Uh, Contrivance, I feel. And had I been... Right? Yeah. Had I, up until this point, been given a little bit more information about Verminard, yeah. I would have been okay with it. They should have had Verminard from, from the beginning leading this host uh, against their home world, their, their hometown, and everything else. See, again, Vader, home world, <laughs> right? I mean, he should have been an ever-looming presence. They should have had this connection between him. That if they want to establish a connection between him and Goldmoon, fine. Have it where they're constantly fleeing from him, and he's always just one step behind them, and, he's, and she's constantly causing danger. None of this is fleshed out, and this just seems dropped as just some sort of willy-nilly piece of, like... It, it, but it's, it's good... It's, it's a good idea. It is, but it shouldn't be popping up this late in the book. And not when I'm thinking Endor, which would have been a year before. Most of the well, kids reading this book would have just gotten out of the theater watching Return think, of the Jedi. This is that scene. And I think, too, we're, it, it's a device to build some urgency. It's the, we better hurry because they know we're here. Right, right. Well, anyway, there is this giant red dragon in Pax Tharkis named Ember. Uh, and again, another thing that kind of bothers me, I mean, giant red dragons are awesome, but again, trying to add layers that are unnecessary. His name is Ember, or Pyros. I mean, like, all these dragons have multiple names. Um, I See, I liked that. I liked that they are so old that they have multiple names, and they've lived multiple lives, oh, yeah, and I'm, there's multiple, th I, I'm there's right multiple things. You. There's multiple things that could have been done. Plus, there's also the aspect of, no. You know, my name is not Bob. It is Mr. Bob. <laughs> you are you are not worthy. But I'm also known yeah, as Bob Wormslayer. Or, back in the old world, Rob Slayer. I mean, I, I don't you know. You are so puny, you are not deserving of calling me my real name. <laughs> and right. it goes back to, and I'm, I'm going to jump genres again here. Good. It goes back to the old idea of, you know, who do you call, what do you call yourself in your head? You know, right. what? because we jump into the dragon's thoughts here for a while as well. Do you call yourself by your first name? Do you call yourself by your last name? Do you call yourself Batman in your head? True. You True. know, what do you call yourself in your head? I liked that aspect of getting a little bit in, in the dragon's head and right. how old the dragon was meant to feel here. I'm just, see, for me, he they haven't done a good enough job making this world feel, I mean, it is epic. I mean, 
what what is epic. This world is epic, but I don't feel it earns the right to have all of this naming scheme and everything. It's trying to be. It's like it's like it's parading around in too big of pants. It it, it thinks it has bigger pants than it does. I'm calling it out as world building douchebaggery. Uh, I I just and I just it, feel like it. it it doesn't earn the right to give all these names to things. Well, it's like if I'm watching the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon from the '80s, and everything has multiple names, and and it's trying to masquerade as something it really isn't at this point. Maybe it'll get there after 190 books, but I don't feel well, it earns this. Level. And the issue that I have here is not so much with the it has multiple names, it has a backstory. Right. The inconsistent the inconsistency of the dragon powers. Some right. dragons can do this. Some dragons can do this within the same species. This is where we hear. This is where we learn about the whole dragons can just magically transform into humans. humans. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, it's cool because it's different. It's different. Something I'll give that, you that. I've seen. that is a. I, I'm turning to Claude later on the episode here. <laughs> it's a D and D thing. <laughs> <laughs> they can. They can. They can shape shift. Um, but I maybe that's just you know. I, I, I wish I knew. I, but I, see, the I'm a bad dungeon master. I should know why some dragons can't. Why the explanation can't. here wasn't shape shifting. There was no explanation here. If you didn't know, if you didn't know that from okay D&D, and I had actually right. forgotten that from from playing the old day. It's just well, how come every dragon isn't just turning into a human and going and messing with things then? Right. Uh, again, I do feel like this is all just playing into my my whole idea that that this book is definitely tailored towards people. My, you know, I would definitely recommend it to people who have played D anD D and know something of D anD D because it allows you to fill in a backstory or be pre predisposed to accept things uh, that happen in this book. But anyway, the men dress up as women. Because uh, we've done everything else. We've taken from every single solitary other genre in this book. <laughs> Let's throw a little cross-dressing in. Yeah, of course. So they're going to dress up as women. The children are guarded by another red dragon, not Ember Pyros, okay, but another uh, red dragon who's named Flamestrike, and he she has dementia or something. Uh, a lot. She is old, damaged, right. physically, mentally... She's she is your she is your P, your PTSD dragon. Yeah, she is that. That's the way I took it. Is it is yeah, yeah. it is the dementia on top of the PTSD on top <laughs> of all, everything else that she's ever had to do, and so now she can't see. There's cataracts over her eyes. There, there's she doesn't have teeth. There's like you know yeah, right. this, this aspect. Later on in the it. book, they I feel like they do kind of show the PTSD where. When there's a fight and she's constantly talking about her kids, her yeah, yeah she, all of those things. That mm -hmm. is PTSD in a nutshell. Right, it's, you have that flashback. She had that flashback. And we've had all these really serious dragons now, so let's throw in a mildly humorous dragon. How do you make a dra dragon humorous? Well, of course you give them dementia and PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> the old daughter, guy, who it should be said, uh, loves the children. I, I didn't mind this aspect. The, the, the 1980s were a better time. Uh, yeah, right. I, I did. I, I liked the aspect that she loved the human children. Yeah, like, like she took them in. I, I got it. Like, does she not really know they're humans? She thinks they're her baby dragons is kind of how I took it. Yes, that's yeah. exactly yeah. how I took yeah, it. That and I like the aspect, too, that we have... That it, it does kind of flesh out dragon culture here as well, because we don't just have the big bad mean evil man eating dragons. Right. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Maybe maybe there's maybe there's a family side. Maybe there's the the, the softer side of the scale. If you will. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It's unexpected. Like yes, yeah. exactly. 
I, I, I would never have thought of it. What if, what if there's a dragon who's damaged and right. like, accidentally fought on your side? Because right. no, when I first heard it, like, oh, there's this Metafleur or whatever her name is, uh, you yes. know, the Flame Strike, uh, I was like, oh, well, here we go, another dragon well, to fight. So now we got to fight two, two, two red dragons. Oh, wait, she's damaged. I immediately knew she was going to be on the good side. Like, as soon as I read it, there was no hiding the fact she's going to be good. I didn't care. They, I, I like this they, they did worry me for a little bit, though, mm. when, when they were trying to flee from her. And sneak past but, her. But, but bringing it back a little bit, uh, when we're in um, uh, Ember's point of view, mm. we start to learn about another plot point. Mm. The man with the gem. Yes. Oh, yes. And I feel like this is definitely, we know we're writing a trilogy, so... I feel that this guy comes in way too late in this book. Like, he's thrown oh, in just feel, at the I very end. I feel like, man, end. why isn't he in book two? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Remove him to book two. Yeah. yeah. Why is he here? Because he comes in, you know, it's like, it's almost like he comes in, like, can-can dancing with a neon sign. Like, I'm important. I'm important, and I have a gem in my chest. It's sort like, of. And Whoa. I don't really like it when, like, we get, like, his point of view, and he's no. just like... I know I'm important, but I don't know what side I want to fight for. Right. Like, you know what? You know why? Because you? I feel to me he de he detracts and he sucks away yes, all yes, of the yes, energy yes. from what's happening here. You have your heroes going to this final fight. You know that the show final showdown is coming, and, and your stakes are already high because you're like, well, they've almost killed people a bunch. This time, somebody I'm thinking somebody's got to kick it in this one. Somebody's dying, right? And then you're going to all of a sudden create, have all this other mythology and another character last minute show up. And this is the guy we have to worry about. And this oh. should, and again, like Luke said, this should, I, I feel this should have been in the next book. Yeah. This should have been in this, this is the character that you bring in in the second mm -hmm. book, in the second movie, in the second part of the, in the, in the second major part of the storyline here, rather than all of a sudden tacking him on at the end of the book here and going, oh yeah, there's also this guy you have to watch out for. What, what, well, who is he? Yeah, it's like it, it's it's basically getting to the end. It's it, it's getting to the end of it's getting to the end of New Hope and finding out that the Emperor had an has you know Bob the Sith apprentice. <laughs> Why are we always somewhere? using my name? But no, it's it's true. It's completely unnecessary. It, it sucks the oxygen out of the scene. We just want to see our heroes fight the big bads. We don't want all of a sudden your last minute cockamamie world building and that jammed down our and I've already learned head. elven history and politics I've learned dragon history and politics there's been a smattering of human history and politics yep. there's a we, we found out a whole bunch about kinder road trips with the family and can yeah. I just say that in, can <laughs> I just say that just in one more thing in my head I, I don't like the idea of a guy with a weird gem in his chest I just hate the visual <laughs> so, so well, it's Iron Man yeah I guess he's kind of Iron Man but that's that's more mechanical see I look more, I'm I'm okay I'm okay more Iron Fist ooh oh well there okay, we go okay. <laughs> okay with it okay with it I like it all right, we got some more bumbling around from Taz and Fizbin. Uh, they well, yeah, yeah, just just as we're getting bored to death, kind these of guys politics show up and everything. Taz and Fizbin to the rescue. Yeah, they're there, and they're they're kind of bumbling around in like in like this. Uh, they're, they, they're spying on Ember and Lord Vernon. Oh, we're gonna go there first. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I also have where where they're they go and they see this like uh this art 
artistic rendering. They're like in some sort of hall, and there's art on the walls mm. showing the Salamic Nights yes. and things that have happened. And this finally, there's finally reference to the Dragonlance. This entire this entire series is called Dragonlance, and we I've have and we have 15 pages left of the book at this point. When and we are about, I, I have the paperback in my hand. We are somewhere around 400 pages in. And we have a Dragonlance. Maybe instead of these discs, maybe they should no, have been trying to no, get a, we, a Dragonlance. We don't have a Dragonlance. We have a painting of a Dragonlance <laughs> or a tapestry of a Dragonlance on the wall saying right. that it existed at one point when one big bad knight hoisted it and took down a dragon right. with the Dragonlance. And I am we have no history here whatsoever except for this weird little pictograph on the wall that shows the dude holding it. No. A little foreshadowing, guys. I'm, I might self-implode or explode as we go through these books uh, in, in the months to come because... If, I have issues with this Dragonlance, and if you call your series Dragonlance, there had better be lots of Dragonlance in it. Uh, and boy, I don't know. I would have been. I, I may have been happier at this point to just meet a dragon named Lance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's a prisoner elf named Ellison, who Goldmoon explains all of this god stuff to. And he's dying of this wasting disease. This is finally where these discs come into play. Um, and I feel at this point... I, don't, I didn't even remember he had wasting disease. He had disease. a wasting disease. Here's, a, again, if it sounds to some listeners who are really into the mythology of Dragonlance and are probably going insane with all that, they're like, that Bob doesn't know anything about this. At this point, uh, I am ready for this final fight, and I am, you know... My pace of reading starts to increase, you know, and definitely. Well, and I don't know, need I don't need a fourteenth character right now that we right, found in a prison. Right, I, I want to fight. And, and and again, if it sounds like uh, it didn't connect with me always, uh, and there was there probably dropped things I missed as to what these discs were doing and and why it's important. Goldmoon has them, and then now it's being given to Ellison, and he is the, like the chosen one here for these discs. If it sounds like I don't have a good grasp as to what these things are, I feel like maybe the book didn't do a good job of really pinning a rose no, as to it, what this no, is. The, the discs were definitely left in mystery. Yeah. Um, and it's, again, I feel like... What was his name again? Elliston. Uh, Elliston. Um, I actually know. Or Ella, Elliston. This was, Elliston. See, and see, Elliston in the prison cell here as kind of coming across as the chosen one, this is totally this is totally the Mormonism aspect for me. This right. is the one dude that we found in the cell who can actually read the discs. Yes. And so as we move forward from that, now we've picked up, you know, member 17 or 11 or how many ever people we have in our party. Let's take the wasting guy with us because he can actually read these discs and start this new religion. Right. And this is just more of the guy with a gem in his chest. It's, mm. you know you're writing a trilogy. You're setting up stuff for book two. Yeah, you're populating the next book. Just set it up in book two. Just set it up in book two. Hey, we're getting to chapter 13, and let me tell you, I got it. I gotta point it out because the title of the chapter is Question No Answers Fisbin's Hat. Uh, that, in a nutshell, is exactly what I'm feeling at this point. I, I have questions, I have almost no answers. Oh, Fisbin's Hat. I'm excited. Fisbin's here. Like, there's the part that I want, you know. Yeah, everything else, I don't I don't care about these discs. Uh, I don't know why in this final battle that you're bringing up more lore and more mythology, except that I feel that you think the demographic reading this is just, that's all they want, is mythology and lore the whole time. And I don't know. We've already started this aspect with Fisbin, too, where... 
the hat's flown off when they've been flying. This hat has disappeared and come back like four times. Right, he keeps now. losing his hat. I feel like I'm said. playing Mario 64 and I lose <laughs> the hat. I have to go pick it up because he doesn't have his powers when he has his hat. He's a little bit weaker. It's so dumb. <laughs> I love right. it. I love it. I love the I love the aspect of the comic relief hat that has a mind of its own. Right, because yeah. they it's are the light. It's it, that it's that little ball of light that follows them around. That just messes with them, right? Because in this little that. ball of light, I forget about. Oh, I love the little yeah, ball. Yeah, so exactly. What's, so I love that you part. really like this scene, Luke, right? So set it up. What's happening in this scene with Fizbin's hat and it falls? And... Oh, oh yes. Okay, so uh, Tass and Fizbin are spying on Lord Verminard and Ember, right? And it's just it's so good. It's classic. I mean, Fizbin has been around for what a hundred pages. Yeah, he's. Thirteen chapters, yeah, and he's my favorite, right? And he's uh, he's listening to uh, to Tass's dumb stories about traveling or whatever, right? And they're spying on these guys, and he loses his hat, yeah. And it should be say, it should be said here they're spying on him, they're spying on these guys from the ceiling, right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, he loses his hat. Yeah, they're they're above them. They're in like some sort of big uh, shaft of the tower. I guess they're, they're like it's like see I read it as this weird because they had to climb up the chains like to get there, that they got, and they so got there's like yeah. see and I saw it as like this weird like chandelier type deal like Ooh, gears yeah. and oh, chandelier okay. yeah, yeah. deal that they're in in the clock tower looking down oh, okay. at them and right right I get it yeah so that, whatever they're doing they're looking because there's a big open shaft so that this dragon can get out to yes. the outside world when he's dragon form. Which, why doesn't he just walk out as a human into the courtyard and turn into a dragon? Does he need this giant built escape hatch? We, we are given a little bit that, ma <laughs> that magic takes a part of you. Ah. So are you going to transform every time and lock oh, out? Okay, okay. But you know, he kind of willy-nilly does the magic stuff anyway. Uh, yeah. the, uh, yeah. It's a Dragonlance book. I don't know. <laughs> just, because, j just because you built the Mandor onto your garage doesn't mean that you don't have the doggy door off to the side, too. That's true. You that know, you know Claude, I like that a lot better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a better explanation. <laughs> Sometimes you just want to walk out in your own form, man. You want to be in your own skin. Okay, so anyway, uh, this really great kind of Charlie Chaplin, Laurel and Hardy thing happens where the, the hat falls off and they watch it just kind of in shocked. Uh, and amazing. Such, As it kind of floats yes. down, and, and what do you do? You can't reach it. Like, oh, right. we're gonna die. Here's <laughs> the thing, though. I'm thinking this whole time, Fizbin's a pretty important guy. Um, you know, I mean, he's a magic user. There's no kind of callback spell. You can't like harness that thing, web it, but to a wall, <laughs> something. Would Fizbin do that? No. Well, I think. Coming up in the next few books, we'll talk about maybe why or why not Fizbin might not have done anything and let this hat just fall. Because I feel we're led to think that Fizbin, even in this one, I think it's not a spoiler that I, I think Fizbin, he's, uh, he's allowing things to happen and sometimes he's acting like he doesn't know what's going on and he's bumbling and doddering. Ooh, but it's like all it's spoiling I don't me. think so. Because I, 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 so. I, I don't think when I read this book the first time, I got that. Well, well, see, I always got the I always got yeah. the aspect that Fizbin is more intelligent than he's coming across. Yeah. And that this is this is kind of just part of his thing. I, you know, I'm there doing, was, I, I, sorry, there was an interaction between Fizbin and Raz, Razalin. Remember Razzlin. the hourglass eyes, mm -hmm. you can see everything. And the reaction between Fizbin and Raz, You're right. all You're of right. a sudden Raz was, 
Oh shoot! Yeah. This guy is very I, well, powerful. Yeah, that that, that aspect that, that aspect of seeing that you're right. That aspect of seeing the truth. There was that one thing, and if you remember, basically, fi- basically at the end of that, when when Reese actually looks at him and and, and sees the truth of Fizben, the scene is shut down with Fizben basically just going shut up and walk. Oh, yeah, away. right, right, exactly. Well, and and, 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 ag- and again, Chekhov's gun and Reese because did. because. <laughs> Because this old man showed up at the beginning, I've been waiting this entire book just like scanning. Okay, old man, three hundred meters in, old the gun's man, taken off old the wall. Man, finally, it's taken off the wall. I'm like, okay, obviously the same thing. So I know that from this book, even uh, there's more to Fizbin than than meets the eye, and that maybe he's allowing some well, of this stuff to happen. Exactly, and we're coming through here, and so they're spying. We're watching the hat float down, and right. it is that yeah, it just, is that slow motion, you know. Dream weaver. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is going to come around to when I, I give my little bit at the end. I am taking Fizbin for face value right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. He is bumbling. He is obviously very powerful at some but point. But just a cracked life. wizard. But he's just kind of, he's just like, he's he has, he has beef with trees. <laughs> and this guy, you know what? Maybe he might forget that. Oh, I could bring the hat back with Mage Hand if I really wanted to. Right. Well, it should be said now. The dragon has alerted their presence, and we get this kind of awesome chase through the castle with you know the and this visually in my head looked awesome as the dragons come behind and blowing fire and trying to get them. And it ends with them kind of trying to go down the chains, the chain room. Uh, oh, this and is he good. this is really he good. blows all of this fire. The dragon does melts through the chains. The chains break, and it ends with them plummeting, and you don't know. So meanwhile, while this is happening, and we think that those guys are dead, Tannis and friends sneak past Metaflor dressed up as women the red dragon wakes up we think oh no right worm slayer starts to hum in the presence of dragons well why would <laughs> yeah come on I mean, this is this is good this is this is um i mean we're already ripping off uh this is tolkien yes, yeah exactly this is the hobbit sword bloody yeah. chunks of tolkien whoever wrote that uh, brilliant i mean that is what it is uh i don't care uh in on all honesty uh, I have gotten so used to the, in this book reading through it and it becoming a pop cultural popcorn to me. Like I'm just, it's like I'm reading it and as things are happening, I'm getting just flashes of movies and other things popping into my head so much that I'm now dead to it. I don't care that Wormslayer hums in the presence of dragons. I don't care. I'm not even trying to equate it to anything anymore. Although I guess I did in my notes. <laughs> but well, and I just and, and this whole scene where the, the, this whole idea of them sneaking by dressed as women, for whatever reason, I had you know that the Middle East. I, I had the Indiana Jones scene. In right. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's in he's in like the belly dancer outfit with the, <laughs> with the with the little. With the little uh, the, the, the face covering the face co- the face covering <laughs> the over his beard <laughs> and just walks by and nobody pays Maybe any attention. Heavily charcoal eyes. <laughs> yes, nobody pays any attention to like the four ugliest women you've ever seen with beards <laughs> that just roll that just stroll on by. This is true. Oh man. So I mean, I like this scene uh, again when it gets com- comedic and kind of farcical. I-, I really enjoy it. This is something I'd have held out a few beats though. Um, and, and we were left thinking that Fizbin and Tass were dead, but... They're back. Yeah. Holy cow. They're, they're still running? Okay, but, okay, how did, how did they live through this? Well, of course when you're falling, what spell do you use but feathers? Feather, feather fall. I remember when I first read this book and I 
proposition doing this podcast to Luke and we were talking about it a little bit. I came right out and I was like, so I think you'll like it because they use spells and stuff from D&D. In fact, I just read about the one they, they're falling in. The, the magic user casts Featherfall and I explained it to him as they, he creates a giant pile of feathers to fall into. Luke hits the ceiling. Like, that is not what Featherfall is. <laughs> it's not that you fall into feathers. It's that you fall like a feather. Well, this like book the took it already. Yeah. Maybe in Dragonlands, uh, when you're I mean, playing what? that system, you create a giant pile of feathers. <laughs> what is? No, I mean, let, like, let's, let's just think about this with normal <laughs> physics in mind. Right. It's a lot easier to slow down and fall like a feather than it is to plummet into a pile of feathers. Right. Like, why? What? And I don't, I don't know how many rules, you know, okay, I am not the guy who has all the rules on magic and things like that, but it feels to me like it's, it's, it's more in keeping with the ideas of magic that you would be like pulling on maybe forces of the earth and gravity gravity and stuff like yeah, that and what's already there to slow yourself then then changing the state of matter then actually creating out of nothingness a giant pile of feathers I, that's very cartoonish i read this as fizzbin messing up on the spell <laughs> for some reason <laughs> I, oh, just, I, I, I agree with you just because i know the I spell i know what featherfall is in my mind it's it a was, joke for D players yeah it was a he messed up and instead and of falling feathers. like a feather he created feathers. I like that. That's actually that, that, I, that's I, much that's, better. That's the same way. That's the same way I read it as well. Oh, that that saves this part for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. except was except for messed up, or he just wanted to mess with pass. Except for the part where he just dies. And we get like a paragraph of like Taz wiped the tear from his eye as he saw what happened, and we never hear from it again. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm, ooh, man. Oh, uh, these people with... Uh, with but that, uh, see, that's, that's something, main you, character that's something to be noted, is Taz survived falling of feathers. <laughs> as far as we know at this point, Fizbin did not. Yeah. Right. And it's just... And I had this, you know, this cho- the choking image of, like, the... the I, I almost half expected him to, like, force disappear um but i have this like choking image of just like the rumpled robes on the on the concrete with that little bit of blood running through the cobblestones and the hand the hand that's like just laying on the concrete above the head as taz we do have part of this scene where taz like rolls over the feathers and it was like oh god that was close and like okay wake up fistbun and he's like poking him and he's like wake up and i have this image of the 12 year old kid poking the old grandpa Oh my god! Uh, you know what? I mean, as touching as that was, Club, I, I mean, like, really, really, I love your interpretation of this. What I got was, the, like, I, I'm waiting for it to come back. Like, it's, mm. there, it's like two sentences of Taz falling, getting up, going over to Fizbin, and not getting something. But you might, you, you just did that in the last chapter. Yeah, right. Where, where they were falling, and they're like, ah, just kidding. Yeah. They're not falling, they grab the chains, now there's going to be a spell, and there's going to be feathers, and they're going to fall into feathers. All right. And I, you're going to kill off the best character <laughs> that you brought into this book like that? Right. You have, at this point, two barbarians, oh. and, and kill off one of the barbarians. Two barbarians <laughs> with the worst love story I have ever, ever. read. Yeah. And there you, is and lots gonna, of people that could off, die you're here. You're going to kill off the comedic relief, <laughs> who is... Ah, the I only am so 
I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, then we, we quickly shift and find out that Evan's a traitor. Who cares? I, I don't have anything to say about this. <laughs> I knew just, this I know, from I'm the done. beginning. I'm Who done. Cares? Yeah, like that. I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not. I will. I'm going to bring this back around. I Because they didn't trick me. No. They, they tricked me. I'm, could we just like, I'm, I'm thinking about it like very, very meta. Like, right. okay, are they, it's very obvious that it's him. Or do they know it's very obvious that it's him? And so they're oh, yeah, gonna be the other guy. And, yeah. and I will tell you something else I thought in here too. When we started when everybody started talking about this traitor thing, I immediately I went in a totally different direction than you guys. I automatically went to the end of book one here. Hmm. Who the hell's the voice in Raceland's head? Mm. And see, okay. that's where I that's where okay. I jumped right away was is Raceland a traitor and he doesn't know it? Yes. I made it way more complicated and probably would have been a better right. Here's the trouble is we're just all, this and this, what, this is what pins a rose on it for me, is we're just all sitting here talking off the top of our heads and coming up with better plot devices than what was actually written into this book. Exactly. We're just going to write a guy in at last minute to be a last minute traitor. Stupid. Yeah. Um, and he's running with a guy named Barum. Okay. The naming scheme in I this book drives me crazy because Barum is the green gem embedded in his chest guy. Oh, he has a name. Yeah, so you got Eben and you got Barum, which are really there. close. You got Tass and Tannis and and see, I went, I went right. I had the hardest time <laughs> with with just reading the name Barum on a page, not going Barium. Yeah, right. As in like, <laughs> as in like Enema. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to get that gem out of him. You know, you know, I, I was thinking more periodic table of elements, but yes, you want to go Emma with Barium, that's fine. Don't even say that. He's got a gem in his chest if they just like literally just went to the periodic table. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, but anyway, uh, Pyros and Verminard are about to kill everybody. Okay, now it's finally, finally getting somewhere when this to me was like a video game. Metafluor. Pyros. Fight! <laughs> you know, I mean, we got it right up to the last little bit, you know, the Death Star is about to blow up Alderaan, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, Metaflor flies in the uh, the deranged dragon to protect her children and crashes bodily into Pyro. And see, I had this whole, like, aspect, too, with, like you said, is this is, this is, this is the Mortal Kombat a aspect here. We're yeah. not throwing spells, we're not doing anything, it's just the two dragons. Ding, 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 I'm okay with it. I know, I was cool with it. This part is cool, I love it because you have these two epic big dragons, they're fighting in the sky, Verminard falls off, because he was riding on the back of Pyro's, he falls off, and... Uh, I was envisioning one of those weird, you know, he lands in the three-point <laughs> Iron oh, Man. Oh, he's going to do the superhero landing. <laughs> he's going to do the superhero landing. Superhero he's landing. Do the yeah. superhero landing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's hard on their knees. It's totally impressive. <laughs> <laughs> just throws out his knee. And see, I love that aspect, too, where we have Pyros, who's supposed to be this big, bad battle dragon. Right. And we don't know anything about PTSD dragon other than the little snippets that we've gotten that right. uh, that she's really old and she took place in wars beyond. And she's so school. Even being the one with it that's not mentally stable or physically stable anymore, there's this aspect that she is just schooling Pyros without even thinking about it. Right, right. I love it. Yeah, I, I do get it. Like, I feel like maybe we're led to believe then that Pyros maybe is so arrogant that he thought he'd never be able to. Oh, be, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, taken out. And then you got, yeah, you know. And we have this aspect, too, where we're, we're already told that Pyros is obviously much younger. 
right. to with, with the aspect of but the the old the old timer who is just schooling the young timer. I'm up for that in any genre. Right. So we have these two big dragons fighting in the sky, and our sh our, our viewpoint shifts as uh, Verminard hits the ground, and we've got Lorana on the ground. Is she just going to be Elven eye candy forever, or is she going to finally come out as being kind of this kick butt girl? She sure does. Uh, she she gets uh, kills all kinds of draconians. Um, and, and there was the moment here where, too, with that is, oh yeah, she's with us still, isn't she? There was that. Oh, Lorana's here. Oh yeah, she came along for the ride. Yeah, there, I'm constantly doing a count here, like, where's Tika? Have we talked about Tika? Well, you know, like, there's River, Moon, Blood, Wind, Lovejoy. Is she around? He around? Like, and, you know? I, and I understand that she's an elf. And I understand that we've been on this journey for a little bit right. since she joined us. The problem I did have, I was okay with it, I got over it very quickly here, but it's that aspect, too, of we have this person who has, hasn't come from this life. Right. She's she's a politician's rich daughter. Yeah. Wow, does she, it's, wow, does she handle a sword well? Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it is the who taught Princess Leia how to shoot aspect. Yeah, here. exactly. I'm bringing it back to D&D. &D. Um, all elves. Yes, I know. I understand yeah. that. Okay. I understand that. All, all elves are taught that. But sparring and actually fighting in a war, fighting on the battlefield with all the other stuff going on it are just, two completely it different things. It just shows things. that she has the guts yeah. to pull out her sword. Yeah. I don't care if I've only learned this in sparring. Right. And start fighting a freaking dragon lord. And yeah, like I said, yeah, right. I was okay with it. I, it. It was that aspect for me, but I was okay with it simply because of the fact that I actually started to care about her now. Right, right. I agree. I, I, I never dislike Lorana. I, I do. I do like her as a character. But and the aspect within here too is she, as she's talking, she's on this trip to be. She, she ran. Remember, she ran away. I don't think we actually talked about. No, we didn't talk. We didn't talk about her coming back. Yeah, though. she no, ran. She ran away from elfin culture from her father and is like disowned pretty much at this point. Right. Because she went to go follow Tannis because she was so in love with him and she was going to show him. That she could be a fighter girl like this kit girl that he keeps talking about. Oh yeah, okay. And so I did like it for that aspect. I never I'm saw like, it as that you she's trying to bring up. herself maybe up to the level of or be like her in some way. Correct. Like, oh, you like this fighter girl. I'll exactly. Be, yeah. I've got a girl crush. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> country song play now. Um, all right. So we're into chapter fifteen, which we've got two chapters left. Uh, so chapter fifteen. We've got the big final fight. We've been saying it's the big final fight, but now it all resolves. So we got Verminard versus Raceland, Caramon, Tannis, and Sturm. They all go down like punks, man. It's I mean, so good. I, I'm loving this. Verminard has this really cool mace called Nightbringer. I think that's cool. Again, this should have been way back in yeah, in the first few chapters definitely. where you where you got Verminard with this big mace, maybe show him do some horrible things with it. So we're constantly throughout the the entire book fearing the presence of Verminard and and his mace and his dragon. Uh, but just last chapter, oh, he's got this really cool mace called Nightbringer. But it is cool. I love this final fight. Um, although I do have to say, I do think they all kind of went down. Kind of like punks. They, were able able to they, really they take should it have. He but had the power of the Queen of Darkness on that's his That's true. Exactly. It should and say he's got Tachesis, yes. the Queen of Darkness, behind and him. And again, that's a D&D &D thing. That's a D&D &D <laughs> thing. Not, no, not, not even, and, and it's not even a bad role. It's not even a, criti it's not even a, a critical role or a bad role thing. Is you occasionally, if you're not, quote unquote, ready, right. or you've jumped 
or you've maybe jumped the gun a little bit and skipped some steps, smack, you're, oh, yeah. you're out. Just a, a whisper into the mace, and your body falls yep, to the ground. Exactly. Well, here's going to be my issue. My problem comes up here with gold melons walking in here. <laughs> with gold moon walking in, okay? And to me, lazy writing. I feel like they got to this final fight, didn't know how to end it, and they backtracked a couple chapters and wrote in that cockamamie, cockamamie idea about Goldmoon having some sort of connection with Verminard. So now when she walks in, she disrupts him enough and his connection with the Dark Queen so Tannis and Sturm can stab him. Like, again, this is something that should have been teased the entire book. It's just like, oh, two chapters ago, you told us all of a sudden out of the blue that there's a connection between Goldmoon and Verminard, and now you're going to use that to to defeat him. Like, I feel like they, they wrote themselves into a corner, and they went and dropped a line to make it work. And part of that, I think, too, was a writing to try to illustrate the overconfidence of Verminard. Right. As right. I've smacked everybody down, I've smacked everybody down. And the difference in Goldmoon from the woman we met at the beginning to who these discs and the wand and everything else and her right. new belief system have, right. start, have started to make her now to where he thought he had this one. He wasn't expecting sure. anything else. And then all of a sudden it's just, oh, wow, that's... You're not supposed to be here. I feel like uh, Goldmoon really hasn't changed, though, much as a character. Um, I feel she was kind of this noble savage at the beginning, and nothing has changed besides that she's found faith. She was noble to start with. She's still noble. She hasn't, I don't feel, gone through any kind of arc except to be there when convenient to the plot. She kills the dragon, uh, you know, back in, in book one. Um, and now she's here to disrupt Verminard. She just kind of pops her little blonde head in with her magic staff of do everythingness whenever the plot requires. And I don't feel there's any arc to her whatsoever, aside from, I guess, leveling up and getting a staff. I read this battle as something totally different. Mm. I read it as a avatar of a dark, evil god, and then the avatar of a good god. And it wasn't really them fighting, it was their gods fighting. I think that's that what is, we're supposed to... That yeah. is what I read it as, as was it's the one god saying, hey, I'm going to take out your guy, you know, just it, one of those. Where it, it is. Was, it's the god. It's the god's chessboard. Yeah, and it's the god's chessboard. And here's my white. Here's my. Here's my white king. Here's my black king. Right. Here's all the pawns in front of everybody else that have just been smoked by the black king. I, I didn't read that at all. I just you know I was reading the battle, I was enjoying the battle, and Goldmoon comes in, and when Goldmoon comes in, it's just kind of whatever the authors need her to be. When right. Goldmoon comes in, the sun begins to shine. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, they defeat Lord Verminard. They defeat Lord Verminard because we, the Dark Goddess leaves him. Right. Uh, Which I liked that aspect of it because I I, I think that really added to, um, and I think that that's going to go into further books too, the pettiness of the Dark mm, Goddess. Yes. Of the, well, I guess you're not going to serve my purpose anymore, so screw you. Yeah, I've got other minions I can, mm -hmm. I can help. Mm -hmm. um, but we've still got the dragon, and so Metaphor finally, in one final, uh, I guess, exertion, she flies at Pyro, slams him into the side of a mountain. It's just as like the, the mountain just like explodes or something and kills him. The whole time her face just getting burned. I mean, visually to me, this this was very cool. I, her flying at him and he's just like, 
burning her, and I'm just visualizing her face just melting to just a scum. I, I, I had to read this a couple of times. It was yeah. a little confusing the way it was written. I'm like, wait, wait, whose face is getting burned? Yeah. Like, I, I, it but, just slams him into a mountain to kill yeah, him. But, yeah, you know, whatever. At, at the end but, of it, it was super cool. It was cool. I liked Very the cool. exploding mountain with the almost... Um, you know the two the two fire dragons slamming into the mountain, and then the mountain explodes. I'm like, did they hit a volcano? Yeah, did exactly. They discover a volcano? Did they make a volcano? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> like, and so that's the end. Our heroes are all standing, bloodied and and triumphant at the oh, but, end. But, of but somewhere one. in there, um, Evan and Gemboy ran away, but they got <laughs> stopped. But of course they got stopped because we're gonna wrap up all the plot points that aren't convenient by the end of this. Book. Exactly. Again, this me this is me going back and to saying that this TSR was not sure that this was going to be a hit. we got to wrap this up. I'm not going to fault it for that. Uh, I've referred to it a million times. One of my favorite film franchises is Star Wars. They didn't think the first one would maybe fly. Wrap it all up in one, boys. Right? So that that's okay. I'm not going to fault it for that. But definitely, uh, again, I'm just saying they've added too many plot points in here, especially with Gem Boy here at the end. Uh, that should have been kicked. Um, all right. So then we end off... With a wedding. Yeah, you can just skip this part of the book. Yeah. <laughs> I only read it because we're doing this podcast. I, man, this is boring. Oh, Ellison, Ellison takes the discs of Michigan, Gold Moon, and Riverwind. Uh, have, again, we've talked about it before, these great Michael Williams poetry vows. Oh, I can't, I can't take this poetry. Just, just Michael, Michael Williams. I heard Michael McDonald, <laughs> Michael Bolton. I'm gonna be on. <laughs> like, but yes, of course we need because of course that's what we need. And I always hate it when authors do this with an epilogue or with something like this. Don't bore me with the epilogue. Set me up for the next book. Yeah. Set me up for the next movie. Let me, you know, I was. Let me see Ray. I was fine with Ray and Luke. Talking to each other, or excuse me, Ray and Luke looking at each other over the lightsaber and then cutting it there without having some weird dialogue we had to go through. Right. I, I would rather. I would rather. Exactly. If you don't think you're coming back for another book, who cares? And for all eternity, your readers can imagine what happened next. And Give us some. If your intention is that you're going to write a trilogy, you better leave a lot of good dangling hooks of plot threads that are going to bring us into this next one. And in 1984, when this was written, in 1984 when this was published, the four women who read this novel didn't need the wedding scene at the end. They didn't care about the wedding scene. That's really what I felt it was, was it's like, we need to finish off a little bit of a love story here. You can the send week. all your hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> what is... What is Klob's email address? Um, no, but yeah, no, I agree. This this wedding thing at the end, again, it's a wedding between people I didn't care about. I was rooting for one of them to die. This yes, entire definitely, definitely. this entire book, and not like, Fizbin. Yeah, and not Fizbin. Uh, yeah, so so I, I'm not invested in this w wedding at all, and it ends with this this uh, song of Huma. And again, they're trying to create this world with legendary stuff. Uh, it's not working. It's not working for me. And that's like, um, you know, we can sit here, we can hate on this epilogue of the wedding. Sure. Or we can just go around the table and we can rate this book out of five. Paul, why don't you start us off? So, what I think this book deserves is probably four kegs of ale out of five, just because. I liked how there were a lot of characters. I liked how I could relate to different people. I In D&D, I play a few different characters, and I could relate to more than just one character. I also, hate to say it, 
in the combat, I enjoyed the back and forth, the transfer of personalities and seeing what everybody was getting. Instead of just one person's view of a battle, I got to see all eight. Yeah, eight might have been pushing it, but that's why I'd give it four. Hmm. Cloud, what about you? Um, I'm on the same page with you. I actually really enjoyed this. I kind of, to go back to something I said actually in our introduction piece, is I'm a firm believer in D&D. Your ambition needs to outweigh your talent. And I think that's what the, I think that's kind of what happened to the authors here, is they had very ambitions, ambitious plans. It just kind of outweighed the talent scheme that they went through here. The second book um, I'm really looking forward to talking about because I feel that a lot of the things that we talked about here are going to be um, explained and going to come more forward, along with other things that we don't like about it. I'm going to go with a 3.5 Bloody Maces out of 5, because you always got to have a little bit of blood on your sword or a little bit of blood on your weapon to go through that. I think this is great as a definite intro to not only D&D, but if you're looking at that like upper elementary school, lower junior high aspect of an intro just into fantasy novels themselves. I think this is a great way to do this. So like I said, 3.5 Bloody Maces out of 5. Luke, what arbitrary system are you going to go with today? So this book, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Volume 1, Books 1 and 2. Man, I don't, I, I'm somewhere, I feel like just from the discussion we've been having, I'm somewhere in the middle. I read through this book, even though it's right on the top of the book, in this bold yellow header, it's a Dungeons and Dragons book. I read this sort of, I'm gonna say, blissfully ignorant that it was a Dungeons and Dragons book. Um, I didn't, I wasn't like burdened by the, you know, I never heard twenty sided dice rolling. I never was equating it to a campaign. And whenever like a spell would come up that I knew in Dungeons and Dragons, I tried to just get it out of my mind because I really enjoy Dungeons and Dragons. But I didn't really enjoy this book. Um, you know, I, it, when it came out, it might have not initially been geared at a younger age. But that's kind of what I'm going to say about it is, would I recommend it to a friend? No. Would I recommend it to my younger cousin who is going into the fifth grade? Yes. It's It's complicated, though. This book kind of... Book one of this book just kind of needs to not exist, and they need to take book two of volume one, and they need to make this better. Book two of volume one, I had so much fun. But I had so much fun in the beginning of book one of this book. And I'm really rambling on about this. I'm going to give this two plates of spicy potatoes out of five from the end of the last home. Initially, initially, I am so excited about how this book picked up towards the end and going into, I'm, I'm about four chapters into book, physical book, volume two. I'm two, four chapters into volume two of the Dragonlance series and I'm loving it. I am loving it where I'm at, but I just, you just get lost in it and I don't know that I could recommend this to an adult friend of mine. Bob. All right, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Um, this was the first book that we we chose to do for our podcast, um, and and I think throughout all of this, listeners have pretty much come to realize that I am I'm not the Dungeons and Dragons uh, guy here, and so I'm going to come at this review from an aspect of uh, would I recommend this uh, to friends 
who, who don't play Dungeons and Dragons and have no knowledge of it. I came at this book um, looking for it to be just a, a fantasy novel that I can enjoy. Uh, I enjoy fantasy, um, so I wasn't looking at it being a tie-in novel, like, you know, to uh, extend my experience from the gaming table um, or, or anything like that. So uh, I came in cold, um, and I'd have to say, like Luke, very mixed bag for me. Um, there are parts here that were really good. Um, there are, are parts here that drive me absolutely crazy. But at the end of the day, um, I've got to look at it. Can I recommend this book? I, I feel this book is an amateurish uh, beginning uh, and, and that there's a lot of cool things. But like any kind of first attempt, any, I read a lot of authors' first works. Every author has, has to have their first book that has its problems. Uh, and I think this one has a slew of them. Um, but can I recommend it to people who, who aren't Dungeons & Dragons players? I, I would have to say no. I, I, I can't. I, I feel there are, so, there are so much derivative material here. Uh, I myself couldn't find myself going more than three pages without seeing other movies or other books I'd already read. Um, and I'm talking about books and movies from 70s and 80s, not because there's been another 25 years of material that I've read or watched. Um, so I, I can't recommend the book uh, to, to, say, my adult friends who are not playing Dungeons & Dragons. That being said... Uh, I do feel that if you are of that perfect age group, if you were 12, 11, 12 to 14 when this came out and, and read it, uh, you are going to love this book. It's going to sit with you. These characters are going to be like old friends to you. And hearing people rag on this book is really going to irritate you. I know I've got things that I watched as a, as a child and I read as a child that I absolutely adore with all of their faults and all of their horrible plot devices. And I get mad when people hate on them, right? I had a kid the other day tell me, I don't like E.T. And I could have just flipped my gourd, right? So I understand if some of you out there who love this book uh, absolutely are flipping that somebody might not recommend this. Um, but I did not grow up with this book. I'm coming to it as a late 30s adult, and there's just too many issues with it for me to... Uh, to recommend it, but I did love it enough, and I've I've developed a sick relationship to it, uh, where I have gotten all kinds of books. I I am buying more Dragonlance books than I ever thought I would. I'm reading backstories and Verminard, yeah, reading his backstory. Uh, <laughs> man with two masks, it's crazy. So I do I do in some weird ways love this book uh, as well. Um, so I would give this. Two non-existent dragon lances out of five uh, is what, what I would give. So uh, from here, we are going on to review the second book in the series. Uh, I'm hoping that it picks up. There is a lot of interesting... I don't know about you guys, but there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, in this one. I, I know I didn't give it a pass, but uh, there was enough here that I, I, I love Kryn. I love the world. I love a lot of the ideas. I'm looking at for as we go forward. I'm gonna spoil it from here. Uh, I think, I've read a lot of books beyond this point. Things get much better. It, it, it gets really good. And that is one of the things that I do, I care enough by the end of the book, something by the end of the book, to wanna know what the loose ends are gonna be, how those are gonna be tied up. Um, I care enough 
by the end of the book, by the end of this part of the story, to want to know it. Okay, I have to at least know what the rest of the story is. Regardless of if I had qualms with the writing, I had qualms with the plot, I had qualms with them not using D&D stuff correctly or effectively, I still want to know what goes on. I need to know the end of this. It's a little CDO on my part, but I need to know what's going to happen here. CDO? OCD's in the wrong order. It's a joke. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? That joke aside, I'm right there with you guys. It's, I mean, I kind of feel like I, I trudged through this book. Right. I found a diamond while I was doing it, and I'm hooked. I want to know what happens. Right. I'm, I'm reading book two right now. I'm loving it. Right. Right. What are we going to... Uh, and I was... I enjoyed this book throughout the entire thing. I mean, yeah, there were things I didn't, but I enjoyed it, and now I really want to continue reading it. Right. I am looking forward to reading book two. Right. All of those things. And like I said, I've been reading ancillary material, like like the tales that came out back in the 80s. It, even though I came up with does not recommend, in a weird way, I love this universe. It has a way of getting into you. The characters, although I have railed on how poorly some of them have been fleshed out, I find myself loving all these characters. Like, like you know, we could we could sit here and we could talk about what's going on or we can just settle up our tab and I can go start reading book two because I'm excited too so why don't we get out of here hey let's get out of here yeah, let's, let's get out of here alright hey Jewel, can we get our tab hey what no no you not her you Thank you for listening to this episode of Dungeons and Dweebs there's even more adventuring to be had at our website dungeonsanddweebs.com we'd love to hear from you you can email at us at dungeonsanddweebspodcast at gmail.com You can also find Dungeons & Dweebs on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find all those links and more at DungeonsAndDweebs.com. If you enjoyed our podcast, please help spread the word by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. The music for Dungeons & Dweebs is Final Fight by Royalty Free Kings and can be found at their website, RoyaltyFreeKings.com. Dungeons & Dweebs is a Tim Gilbert Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show can be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the expressed written consent of Tim Gilbert Media Incorporated.